Um, her spouse is a psychologist, um, also here at George Fox. And uh, she's here today to talk to us about walking justly and doing mercy, teaching that moves beyond ideas toward action. So teaching that makes a difference. Please join me in welcoming Lisa. It's a great big room for the few of us that are here. I was having a good conversation with an engineer yesterday who told me that he really wanted to see more of our kind, my kind here, more um, sociologists and psychologists, because he was recognizing how much they needed us, which I thought was a really cool thing. But So to set a little bit of context, how many of you in here are not from the social sciences? Oh, good. That's encouraging. I like that. And then because I'm talking about teaching, how many of you here in some capacity of what you do, whether or not you're full-time professors, spend some time in the classroom teaching? Good. Also, very good. Well, I, I imagine that all of you who have taught have had this experience. I, one of the courses I teach is sociology of sexuality, and we cover all kinds of things. But one of them, this particular week, we were talking about the pornography industry. And I had them reading perspectives from men, both men and women, and from psychologists and sociologists and feminists. I don't think I had them read much from Christians. They were getting that perspective from me. But the arguments we're talking about, why, why this really isn't a good thing for our culture, arguments against, against it, saying that it uh, objectifies women, it makes both sex and women a commodity, it's ultimately raising unrealistic expectations for sex, it's isolating. I thought it was a really compelling day and a very good argument, very good conversation. So in that class, I have students that send me weekly responses to the reading and also weekly responses to what goes on in class. And one student, you know, he, I knew he was in class, but his response was something like, he doesn't know why those conservative Christians are so upset with pornography. He thinks it ought to be a personal decision, and it, he didn't find any harm in it himself. And I had this kind of experience of, how do I ever get what really goes on in the classroom to connect with how people think about their own lives? Similar kind of example, I was a guest lecturing for a senior capstone course. The course was looking at the American dream. Do we have it? Why or why not? And my task was to talk about consumerism and why is it that we have such abundance at our fingertips and yet people who are really not very happy and content. And so really nice conversation. I thought good questions about contentment and discontent and how we're all about listening to the advertisers that say, if you really want to be happy, buy this. Let me suck some fat out of your body. Let me put this cosmetic on your face. Whatever, whatever it is, you spend money, you'll be happy. Very good conversation about that. And then afterwards, overhearing students talking very much about the shopping trip they were going to go on and what they needed to buy. And again, it was this, oh, how do I get students to connect to what I'm talking about in the classroom with what they're thinking about in their lives? Missing the point. But if you have also taught, I imagine you have those really encouraging conversations with students who get it. They want to know what they can do to respond to the information that they're learning. They really are fully engaged in critical thinking. They want to participate in being part of the solution of some social problem that we're talking about. Another class I teach is social change. It's probably my favorite. We discuss issues of ecology and population and hunger in the context of also looking at political systems and economic systems and religious and cultural systems. And as we were talking about global poverty, it came out that 
I choose one of my responses is that I eat pretty low on the food chain, and we talked about what that meant. Mostly it means I eat vegan, but you put something in front of me, I'll eat it, because another value I have is to be a gracious receiver of whatever I'm served. I had two students who really wanted to unpack that. What, what does that look like? Can you give us some recipes? I'm, I'm trying to cook more vegan, vegetarian. Can, can we come to your house and cook with you? And we started a cooking club. And so once a month, some, those two students and a couple other students join them, and I give them some menu options, and they bring some of the food, and we cook together, and we eat together. And, and students are getting it. And they're uh, applying what we're talking about in class in ways that affect them. That happens, I imagine, all of you who have taught have that experience of sometimes knowing that students are really getting it and sometimes being a little bit discouraged why they don't. I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones in my discipline. I have a discipline that it's pretty easy to integrate it with faith. It's easy to integrate it with action because we're looking in sociology at human groups, how they organize themselves and how people's beliefs and sense of identity shape their actions, and we unpack that, look at inequality, and look at equality, and look at change. It's fairly easy, because we're studying, we're studying human groups. But there are a number of sociologists who really think any self-respecting sociologist is only going to study human groups and not really try to do anything about it. And that as soon as we step into the realm of trying to do something about it, we have become either priests or prophets or politicians. And what we're really supposed to be is scholarly academics that only lay the information out and then let students decide what to do with it and where to go with it. I've taught at institutions, uh, as it was said here at, at George Fox and at Wheaton College and then a short stint at Trinity International University. And all of them were unapologetic about wanting us as faculty to help students figure out how they're gonna live in the world on the basis of what they believe primarily their faith, but also how does what they're learning in their discipline shape the way that they're going to think about how they're going to live. On one level, it's about career path. What are you going to do to pay off that school debt when you get done? But sometimes it filters down to what kind of car they're going to drive or whether or not they're even going to buy a car and maybe how many children they're going to have and whether or not adoption is going to factor into that equation for them, where they're going to live, what kind of diet they're going to eat. We welcome, I, my discipline welcomes such conversations. And in as much as this topic, it just resonates so much with something I care about, I love the interdisciplinary hope of bringing biologists and chemists and all of the sciences together to have conversations about how do we better bring together the knowledge we have to help students make decisions about how they live. So my talk, briefly. I'm going to offer two pedagogical models for helping us think about moving students beyond just classroom talk to action. And then offer two examples. One of them is a very formal, it's institutionalized, an example of how this can play out. And another, and actually I'll just snapshot a few of them, rather informal opportunities to do that. And then I'd really like to open it up for how have some of you done that? How have you found ways to bridge what goes on in the classroom to what goes on in students' lives? So pedagogical models. The first one is C. Wright Mills. He was my hero in grad school. He's a late 1950s, well, he's, yeah, in the 1950s he was alive. He is no longer alive. He was actually so unliked that people, it was said, you know, those kind of urban legends, went to his funeral just to be sure he was dead because he was so disliked. 
he introduced a concept that I have used in all of my classes called the sociological imagination. It's a conceptual tool that he hoped would stretch beyond the classroom into broader public discourse about issues. It connects personal troubles to public issues, helping students, but beyond that, people in general see how their own personal crises, whether it's unemployment, whether it's coming out of a broken home, whether it's I, I'm in a cesspool of pollution in my backyard because of how things are being dumped here. How does that connect to something bigger and more systemic? And then figure out the questions that would eventually lead to helpful action. How do I connect and not just stay rooted in this is my life, this is what's bad, but how can I connect it to things that are going on broader in the public discourse? How can I connect those two? And it requires, and this is one of the reasons he wasn't popular, challenging assumptions about how the world is. Because I might have answers to what's going on that are really not necessarily true, but fit in pretty nicely with the assumptions I have about, if not how the world is, how I think it should be. Mills was unpopular with his contemporaries for a number of reasons. But the number, or the one that's most relevant to this conversation, is because he very much thought we cannot just be social critics who criticize the world that is but offer nothing else but to say this is what's wrong with it. There were a lot of sociologists at the time and some of his contemporaries who said what we're really supposed to do is just study the negative impacts, for instance, perhaps negative impacts on ecological systems that come from culture or politics or economics, but we're not supposed to get overly active in doing much about it. The assumption is that students are going to fill in the blanks on their own, and we need to only give them the information and allow them to fill it in on their own. We're scientists, we're not priests, we're not prophets, we're not politicians. I have some colleagues who do that much better than I do, who can stand in front of a classroom and give a lecture on something controversial, abortion perhaps, and never, never lead, lead on where they stand on it. And I've asked students, how do you, is that what you prefer? And some students will say, yeah, they do kind of prefer that because then they feel like they're actually just getting a real balanced perspective. And I have other students who say, you know, at the end of the day, I need to know. I need to know because you're one of my role models. And I, and I need to be able to fit that into how I'm thinking about you. And besides that, besides that, whatever we stand, however we stand on a particular issue, it's probably going to infuse the way we teach that issue anyway. So to be honest at some point in the presentation and say, this is where I stand, let it be a caveat to anything that I say, but at least you know where I stand, that's, that's where I have come down. That's part of helping our students think about it's not just an academic enterprise. We've got to take what we're learning and decide how is that ultimately going to affect how we vote? How is it going to affect how we shop? How is it going to affect how we eat? When we academics are told we live in ivory towers, we've not just been complimented for how smart we are. Mills was rather fond of pointing this out in rather rude and obnoxious ways. More likely, we're being chastised for having a lack of congruence between this world of ideas and how we live. Or not connecting very well to the real world that we study but don't live in. How can we do that? Remove ourselves from an ivory tower that says, let me go actually live with the poor and get their perspective on this issue. Because if I only come as somebody who is in an ivory tower about what I think is the solution to your problem, but I've never lived with you, that's that incongruency of living in the ivory tower but not necessarily knowing whether or not we're being very relevant to the world that we are studying, the world we're researching. 
there are many that still defend our ivory tower in the name of objectivity, and granted that's the biggest weakness of the way that I teach, is I am unapologetically not so objective. As much as I'm going to try to bring both perspectives, there is a sense that who I am is ultimately going to affect the way that I teach and how I teach it. And so they hold to another earlier sociologist, Max Weber, who believed it was very inappropriate to use the classroom as a pulpit or a political platform to discuss one's values, that to have a captive audience and to use it that way was an absolute abuse of our academic freedom that we have. And I would agree that he has a very valid point there, that we need to be careful how we use the power we have behind the lectern to say whatever it is that we're going to say. For the sake of our students, I think we need to be willing to, my personal, as I've said, is to be willing to move and say, this is where I ultimately take my stand. I'll do my best shot at giving you the perspectives that are out there and to do it as fairly as I can. As a liberal arts educator and a Christian, I believe along with Mills, who was not a Christian, by the way, uh, had not very many good things at all to say about them, that it's appropriate to use the sociological imagination to help students grapple with controversial political and theological questions that they have related to ecology, related to all kinds of social issues. My challenge has always been, how do I bring the call of Micah 6-8, which is kind of a theme of this conference, to love mercy and justice and walk humbly before God? How do I bring that into the classroom in ways that are appropriate, that are true to my discipline, true to the academic rigors of being fair and also valid with my faith? One way for me is using the sociological imagination. What's happening personally? How does that connect to broader social systems? What are the interactions? What are the complexities? And can we at least name them even if we won't unpack and understand them all? How can the way I live contribute to the solution as part of thinking about the sociological imagination? Does it really matter if I drive a Hummer? Does it really matter if I eat meat? two or three times a day? Does it really matter if I use incandescent bulbs because I prefer them, because I can dim them if I want? So that's one pedagogical model. Second one, more of you are probably familiar with Parker Palmer. How many of you have heard of Parker Palmer? A few of you, not so many. He's also a sociologist, a contemporary. He's known primarily for his role as an educator. He's, he educates teachers on how to teach, written an excellent, a number of excellent books. Courage to Teach is probably my favorite. If you're needing a shot in the arm before classes start, I, I, do, I read that book every three or four years. He helps us think about our roles as teachers. And he says, all of us come to the classroom with four levels of thinking about our teaching. The first one all of us come to is we're thinking about what are we going to teach. We, we figure that out as we make up our syllabus or as we outline a lecture that we're going to give. We define our course objectives. We figure that out. What are we going to teach? It's one level. It's important. It's basic. Most of us go and think intentionally about the second level, which is how are we going to teach it? What's the best way to communicate this? Lectures? Yeah, to some extent. How much am I going to use? Snazzy PowerPoint? How am I going to teach it? How many, is there a simulation that would work well here? Is there a field trip we should take? Is there a guest lecture I should bring in? That good teaching goes into thinking about what's the most effective way to teach what I want to teach. A third level, and, and a lot of good teachers go here as well, is I need to think about why this is important. Because if I don't think it's important, I'm going to have a hard time communicating to my students that it's important. So why is it important for me to teach what I'm teaching the way I'm going to teach it? If we can't figure that out, our students will struggle as well. I think it's easier in sociology. We get to talk about things like race and families and gender and sexuality and social change and inequality. 
I think it might be tougher for some of you in the sciences, but maybe I'm just saying that because I'm not one of you. I, I hope that that's true and that all of you find ways to say what I'm teaching is important and this is why. And the fourth level, the one that hardly ever gets talked about, and so Parker spends more time talking about this, is thinking about what do I bring as a professor to this course that I maybe don't even consider in the process of thinking about what I'm teaching and why I'm teaching it? Where does my life and personhood intersect with this information and shape the way I teach it? And how can I use that to be most effective in communicating with students and getting them to think outside of the classroom with whatever it is we're grappling with? If I'm not thoughtful about this, it doesn't mean that who I am isn't impacting the classroom. It just means I'm unintentional about it. So for an example, I'm a woman professor. I came out of a background that was very conservative and you know my father whom I dearly love and reconciled many things before he died thought that it was pretty much against the will of God that I was teaching men in a college setting. All of that is going to infuse the way that I teach and run a classroom, a classroom of men and women. I'll respond differently to my women and also differently to my men. I need to be thinking about how is that shaping me as a professor and what I'm trying to do. I chose to have babies at home and that when I talk about medicalization of sexuality I've got to know that that's going to shape the way I think about all of that. So when I present what that means, medicalization of sexuality, the fact that I made those choices ultimately is going to, I need to be aware of that. I need to be intentionally thinking about how have my life choices reflected the way that I'm going to infuse my teaching. It, it's a both, it goes both ways. How does what I think influence my choices? Ideally, what we bring as individuals is going to be congruent with other aspects of our teaching. It's an opportunity to model, in fact, how our choices emerge out of what we study, but also significantly how what we study has been shaped by our life choices. And that this is a very dynamic relationship that infuses the way that we learn and what we're open to in learning. And if students are going to take what we learn in the classroom and move it into how we are thinking about living, that's part of the process for them as well. It's a question we don't ask as we develop syllabi, but we're asking it all the time as we reflect on how we live and what we believe and how that is shaping our classroom conversations. Who we are will shape our students' experiences. Being intentional about it allows us to be more transparent models to our students. One of my goals has been to try to be appropriately transparent with my students. Now, there's certainly ways that it's not appropriate for me to be transparent to my students. They are not my peer. I, I am not on display for them to figure out my personal life and tear it apart. But at the same time, the transparency I do allow encourages them to be thinking, how, how can I also have a congruency with what I'm learning and thinking and how I'm then going to be living? So two models. The formal one, this is just one formal one. I actually heard about another one as I was talking to a student over lunch today that Calvin has. A formal one that comes from my experience at Wheaton College is a hunger program. Hunger, human needs, global resources is what it stood for. I think of Wheaton as a very risk-adversive school, but this was an incredibly risky program that they stood behind, and I think it, was, it is one of the pearls of Wheaton College. It was an effort to get learning out of the classroom what it did, it uh, took students for six months. They, they, it was a rigorous program. You had to uh, apply to get into it. Not everybody who did made it. And you had courses you took before to prepare you. And then 
after your junior year, for that summer and the fall of your senior year, you spend six months by yourself in a lust a country in the global south, working with an NGO under the supervision of, uh, it's an indigenous-run NGO, so people who are really understanding what the issues are and how they are thinking about working with them. And you do whatever they want you to do. Our students go sometimes with the idea that they're going to go save Malawi. And instead, they're given the task of typing. And they realize that part of what they learn is just sitting with people in their own suffering and in their own struggles and their own way of thinking through what is it that we need? What is it that we need from you? And our students who do best are the ones that can go there humbly and recognize that there's an awful lot for them to learn before they can ever begin to make any kind of contribution. So hunger, this is the description of it. I want to read it to you. Um, not that I think many of our schools would adopt it, but just to think about the possibility of how can we intentionally think about engaging students. Hunger is an interdisciplinary certificate program that equips students to confront the multiple challenges faced by peoples and nations of the global south. Comprising substantial portions of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, these regions face overwhelming challenges, including poverty, hunger, exclusion, underdevelopment, conflict, injustice, ecological disasters, and major health concerns. At the same time, these regions are endowed with substantial human and natural resources, which are their hope and future. In partnership with host organizations worldwide, Hunger combines classroom study with field-based service learning internships, where students participate in transformational initiatives that enable people to live whole, secure, and productive lives. It's a program that takes learning out of the classroom very intentionally, and we knew it was shaping our students very profoundly, whether or not they spent any other part of their life in other parts of the world. It requires institutional vision and commitment. Many of our schools have various kinds of programs that do something like this. Calvin apparently has one that takes biology students, maybe engineering students. They develop something in the classroom, and then they go out in the field. They go to countries and other parts of the world and, and put forth whatever it is that they are uh, the application of what they've been working on in the classroom. An informal example, Bill McKibben. How many of you have heard of Bill McKibben? Oh my goodness, may I introduce you to a very inspirational writer and scholar. He's a scholar in residence at Middlebury College in Vermont. He's an activist, an environmentalist, a journalist, a speaker. Middlebury started the first environmental studies major in 1965, the first one that we had nationally. It's a school with an ecological mindset already. They have a goal of zero carbon emission by 2016. If you were in the Calvin um, last session, Calvin College was talking about how they're trying to get to be um, carbon neutral. They did decrease it by 8% below 1990 levels in 2007 alone. So this is a school that's very proactive already. It's not surprising that student activist groups are emerging out of that context. Step It Up emerged in 2007. You can go online and look at this, and it's phenomenal what this student group did, led by McGibbon. It was a small group of students that started with conversations in October of 2006. They wanted to push the conversation of global warming on Congress. They did a five-day march across Vermont. They launched stepitup2007.org to encourage students and other groups to get Congress to pay attention. April 14th of 2007 was their first event, and they had 1,400 places in the United States holding events responding. This is a phenomenal student effort. It was informal, but you had a faculty member that was willing to say, let me partner with you and let me help you organize. 
And so they have done amazing things. Bill McGibbon says that he thinks since the end of Vietnam War, these environmental groups that are coming from students is the biggest movement that we've seen. It's a generation who thinks something needs to be done and they're willing to step it up and make it happen. So besides step it up, there's energy action, Kyoto Now, Bright Planet, Focus the Nation, all kinds of student groups that are emerging. Get students out of the classroom. Help them build web pages. Host a lunch to talk about organizing campus groups. Help locate funds to send a student to a conference like this. Or we sent a student to a conference that was on global poverty working. He actually got to meet with world, not meet with, listen to world leaders and talk about the millennial development goals. And he came back and led the charge for our student group to really get more involved in what, what can we, how can we inspire our own campus. Not all efforts need to be grand to get student learning beyond the classroom. I think it's overwhelming sometimes to think only about those. But that group of students who just wanted to learn about how to eat, you know, that's a small thing, and yet it's a pretty substantial one when you start thinking about how you change the way that you think. The question becomes easier when it's, what are my passions, and how can I share them with students in my community? So preparing local low food chain meals is one. Planting trees it's another passion of ours. We live on what we call Fern Creek, five miles, or it's five acres a few miles away. It used to house cows and now it houses us. We were, were turning the pasture back into forest, thinking that's probably one of the smallest gifts we can give back to the earth. We've planted, now we've planted 700 trees, but some of them die. We finally figured out we really need to keep the weeds away because the mice eat around them and we're slow learners. But last year we hired seven sociology majors to help us plant 525 trees. And it was a fantastic side-by-side -side learning about what we can be doing in our own lives that makes a difference and gets us out of the classroom and thinking differently. I love that one of the students, several days later, he was talking to someone else and just telling him, take a deep breath. Can't, can't you just tell the quality of the oxygen in the air is better? It's because I was planting trees, and there's 525 more trees now than there were before. I love how he was connecting that. Best practices in teaching will connect what students are learning to how they see and understand and live in the world. It's easy to do it in sociology. I would be interested, I know we can have general questions, but we're going to take just a few minutes first. I would be interested in hearing how some of you have done this in your disciplines. I, I think I might be the only sociologist here. How have been some of the ways that you have effectively seen this helping students take what they're learning in class and applying it to the way that they're thinking about living their lives? So a few moments for that first, and then we can have some moments for general questions. How have some of you done this? If you uh, have uh, comments, um, can you go to one of the microphones? It's just really much nicer for the recording um, of the session than it's much clearer what you've asked. So um, when you have stories to tell and share, please just go to one of the microphones on the side. We all in our ivory towers. <laughs> I do need somebody to talk. Thank you very much. So I was involved in developing an engineering curriculum in mechanical and manufacturing engineering. Uh, subsequently, subsequently, it had to be accredited, and um, the way engineers go about their businesses try to 
break things down into the smallest pieces and turn it into modules and then move those around. And when it came to the accreditation criteria having to do with engineering in a global context and sustainability and social uh, consciousness, which is part of the accreditation criteria, they were stumped. And uh, But this time I had retired and I was working on a book on engineering ethics and technology, technological ethics, and they called me and said, come back and help us with this preparation for accreditation. What they wanted was an add-on module so if they could plug it in on top of or in somewhere in the curriculum and all the engineering students could go and take this module and come away with the sensitivities that were needed for accreditation and they could tell the accreditation board that, hey, we've done our duty. I don't think everybody in this room thinks that's a very good way to teach ethics or social consciousness. Mm -hmm. So I tried to get the faculty, I had the faculty to myself for a morning to sensitize them to the topic. My goal was to try to get them to grapple with some of the issues so then they would take them into the classroom. The faculty didn't want that, they wanted a module. Give us some quick answers that we can throw in front of the students or some problems to chew on with answers that you'll give us and we can throw those out. It was tough taking the faculty to the point of wrestling with the um, non-measurability of some of the ethical, sociological, environmental, global issues. Uh, eventually, we agreed that they had to be woven into the curriculum in some way. There couldn't be a separate course or a separate module of a course that would get them all they needed in this area. It's much harder than that. Somehow make it part of the problems they have to solve. They have to solve problems with ethics and values woven into them that they come up against and to have to deal with. I thought it was a major coup to get them to the point where they said, I guess we have to do it that way. But it's still an instinct, I think, in the way engineers are trained to reduce it to a problem to solve rather than a way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I do think it's challenging, and sometimes our objectives themselves and our outcome measurements, we have to be able to measure our outcomes, and I think sometimes that gets in the way of actually good teaching that helps students get out of the classroom. Yeah. Just a, a simple thing, but um, when I teach biology for non-majors, most of the textbooks, they're usually human biology, they begin with healthy habits. Seven healthy habits, you know, sleeping and drinking water and eating right and exercising, etc. And when I just in, informally poll students and ask them, how many of you keep them all? No hands raised. So I just decided in, we're the worst in biology. We know what we're supposed to be doing, and we don't do it. So I just challenge the students, pick one area that you want to improve, set a goal. That's part of your assignment. You get a grade for it, but you have to reflect on it, and you have mm -hmm. to measure your progress even when you start to fail. And I've had a lot of good feedback from students who say, I've never exercised in my whole life before, or something like that. And it's just kind of the... I realized there was a huge disconnect between reading in the textbook what you're supposed to do and what people actually do. And I have to say, faculty, we are the worst. So I try to take the challenge myself. Thank you. Yeah. I, th I think in the hard sciences, um, we think of the laboratory course as part of what you're talking about, although it keeps us in the ivory laboratory uh, I found it pretty hard teaching biochemistry to 
apply it directly to people's lives. But during the Vietnam War years, uh, there was a lot of uh, turmoil on my campus about being relevant and that that science wasn't that academic life was not relevant to real life and so on. So just about that time, the university started an honors program. And I think I was the only one in my department who volunteered to teach an honors seminar. And so the first one I, the first topic I chose to let people sign up for was, uh, had to do with relevance and science. And I was fascinated by these things and I kept uh, I kept clipping out stories of uh, uh, ethical problems in science and how science and politics were tied together and the military-industrial complex and stuff like this. And, and I got all ready to teach this course. And what I discovered is that none of the undergraduates knew anything about that at all. It wasn't, it wasn't on their minds. So about halfway through this seminar, when I was pouring my heart out to them about how important this is and everything. I just stopped and asked them, well, why'd you sign up for this course? If you don't mind. Well, their idea of the ethics of science had to do, at, was much more at a personal level. They wanted to know whether they should stay in science or not, or whether they should marry somebody who was a nerd. You know, and it was, uh, it was highly personal and Probably I would have enjoyed teaching that course even more, but I didn't dare do it on a state university campus, you know. And uh, So the next time I thought, well, they asked for it, so the, the next year I taught a more personal course, and uh, that, that one went, went over better because it was closer to what the students wanted to talk about. But then the third time I just decided, well, I'll just do this for the fun of it. And uh, we, my wife and I got all the, we, we got all the novels of academic life we could find that were in cheap paperbacks. And we assigned sort of like one a week for people to read. And, um, and we just talked about academic life as a, as a taste of real life, you know, and I, I, uh, it was clear to me that the students had no idea of the of the intensity of turmoil among the faculty. You know that the the university was a real microcosm of of chaos and turmoil and tension and everything like that. And the students didn't know anything about this. So we introduced it to them by way of reading novels. So as a as a biochemist, I had to kind of step out of my normal role to try to do what I think you're talking about. Hmm. Thank you. We've got about two minutes here, and then we need to move to the next presentation. So. Okay. Thanks, Lisa, for that talk. One of my favorite quotes from Parker Palmer is, you teach who you are. Mm -hmm. So it's our responsibility to be healthy ourselves in our academic fields and apply what we're talking about and have a growing edge to our own academic life. And that means applying it somewhere, gaining experience. I've often thought that the one thing I'm selling the most is experience. And I do that mostly by storytelling. But I'm thinking of a couple stories that um, relate to applying what we have in the academic uh, tower. I had a friend that had a daughter who was 14 and got into alcohol. 
in regards to how many probations she put her daughter on, couldn't get her away from the kids and the alcohol. So she took her daughter to Africa on a Northwest medical trip and had her hold dying babies mm -hmm. for three weeks. And that daughter came back with a different mindset. So the application of experience can change a mindset. And so in the case of biology here, uh, we have a science outreach program. We put our majors into teaching kids about science. And the interesting thing is that something that's totally unexpected is a lot of those kids go into teaching because they have such a wonderful time teaching other kids about teaching. Mm -hmm. So suddenly we have eight or ten biology majors wanting to teach high school, junior high, because of their experience. So mm -hmm. I think you're right. The key to all of this is application. It's getting out of the classroom and mm -hmm. applying what you learn. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Dwight. And I think we're out of time. We are out of time. Do you want to make a final concluding sentence or something, Lisa? Thank you for your conversation. And I would just encourage that we continue to have conversations about what it looks like in our particular disciplines to be helping students get outside of their own sense of just ideas into how they're going to live.